Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of night where we start to talk a little bit about what's gone on in the week in science. Um, and so, as always, if you want to learn more about what's going on that I am looking at, you can find me throughout the week on the Evidence-Based Radio Facebook page. And you can also find this um, in another couple of days and uh, past episodes uh, on evidencebasedradio.com and also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And before we start uh, getting into stories tonight, I do want to let you know that Monday is the next installment of Nerd Night NoHo. And so it's from 7 to 9 p.m. at the World War II Club, uh, the Deuce. Uh, <laughs> and so this month, the two talks are, uh, the first one is by Bob Gould, titled, Can You Survive an Airplane Accident? And so he's going to talk about uh, how airlines became pretty darn safe, actually. Um, even though they don't seem to be pretty safe, they actually are very, very safe you're much more likely to be killed in an automobile than you are in a plane. Unfortunately, when you die in a plane, it's usually pretty horrific and spectacular. And that can be where a lot of the issue comes in. And so then after that, there is going to be a presentation by guitarist David Chu and vocalist Lonnie Chu. And they will have a demonstration called Flamenco for Smarties. So they'll be playing flamenco music. They'll uh, be talking a little bit about its origin and teaching some basic rhythmic hand clapping. And uh, also we'll do some percussion work, including uh, demonstrating castanets. So that sounds pretty fun. Uh, flamenco is very cool. So definitely do check that out. Again, that's Monday from 7 to 9 at the World War II Club here in uh, Northampton. So, okay, now that we've gotten that out of the way, let us start talking about what I've been looking at this week in the world of science. So we're going to start with a familiar theme around here um, because there is a, the first sort of uh, CDC numbers are coming out for the new flu season and it is already kicking off with higher than average reported cases. Now, this isn't too surprising um, because there was a really, really hard flu season in uh, the Southern Hemisphere, especially in Australia this year. And so very much so that is definitely something that potentially is going to translate into the Northern Hemisphere's version of the uh, flu season. Now, the numbers aren't huge yet. Uh, it's very early, but it does suggest that there could be a larger than average occurrence of flu infections this year. So for the week of Thanksgiving, the CDC reported that 2.3% of doctors' visits were for flu-like symptoms. This is up from 1.9% for 2016. Influenza activity in the United States has been increasing since early November, the researchers wrote in their report. It is difficult to predict when influenza activity will peak for the current season. However, influenza activity will increase in the coming weeks. And so the particular strain of virus that is most prevalent at the moment is the H3N2 variant. And the problem with that is that this is actually a variant that's known to have a greater than average overall 
flu hospitalization and death rate. Uh, so that makes it even more dangerous besides the fact that it's just a uh, rather, um, it's a rather uh, virulent strain. And so there have already been this year, been five reported deaths from children um, compared to zero deaths at this time last year. And we don't actually know about if there were any um, adult deaths because uh, currently the CDC only tracks um, infant mortality or childhood mortality um, for the flu this early. Um, and so you may, again, as always happens every year, uh, you may start hearing stories about how the vaccine that avail is available isn't all that effective. Um, but remember that even a small amount of effectiveness has a huge effect. Um, this is sort of a mathematical uh, equation that isn't linear. It is exponential. And so um, the CDC notes that even with influenza vaccine effectiveness in the range of 30 to 60 percent, influenza vaccination prevents millions of infections and medical visits and tens of thousands of influenza associated hospitalizations. Uh, so obviously, if you have not gotten your flu shot yet, do it. <laughs> do it ASAP. Uh, currently, the CDC estimates that only around 38.6% of the population of Americans over the age of six months have been vaccinated. This is not nearly enough. Uh, that leaves around three in five people across the country unprotected. And again, the flu is not just a bad cold. It is a serious infection that can lead to serious complications. It can lead to pneumonia, which can lead to death. Um, and the flu itself can cause death. Um, the particular strain that's out there isn't known as a particular killer, but it is more of a killer than uh, other strains out there. Um, it's not a sort of, uh, we're not looking at 1918 right now. So you don't have to be panicked, but you should be concerned. Um, and the easiest way to ease your concern is to go and get your flu shot. Uh, so again, please, please go get your flu shot. Uh, especially, especially if you are ever uh, around uh, young people or around um, uh, the elderly. Because that is really, really important to uh, make sure that you are giving them extra protection just in case they don't have um, as good of immunity. Okay, so let's move on, uh, but we're going to still stay in the realm of medicine. And I want to talk about the fact that this is something that's been known for a while, but um, there's a new report and people are kind of uh, trying to get the word out there now because it's, it is something that uh, people should be worried about um, a little bit again. Um, and so this is the fact that taking the supplement biotin uh, might actually affect the results of some blood tests. So according to the FDA, one death has actually already been positively linked to this issue. 
Now, biotin, um, also referred to as vitamin B7 or vitamin H, it's often found in multivitamins, prenatal vitamins, and it's actually also sold as a supplement uh, that is supposed to improve nails, hair, and skin. Um, And so the problem, though, is that it can uh, interfere with some of these tests. So reporting on November 28th, the FDA noted that the biotin-related errors can skew lab results because a variety of lab tests, including those to measure hormone levels and tests associated with signs of a heart attack, actually have biotin in them as part of the test itself. So many tests rely on a strong bond between biotin and the protein streptovidin in order to increase sensitivity. So biotin and streptovidin are part of a process that creates a signal, which is either proportional or disproportional to the amount of substance the test is meant to measure. And uh, this is noted by Danny Lee, uh, lead author of a recent uh, Journal of American uh, Medical Association study. And um, she is an assistant professor of laboratory medicine and pathology at the University of Minnesota. And so having an elevated level of biotin already in your bloodstream can cause the results that are indicated to be more or less of the measured substance than is actually present in your system. And so that can be really bad. Um, And the other thing is, is that research is currently sparse on exactly how much biotin is needed to skew the results. Now, the problem is, of course, that as with many supplements, the amount of biotin in vitamins can be many times that of the recommended daily value. So some supplements, for instance, contain 20 milligrams of biotin. That's 650 times the recommended daily value. And so Dr. Lee conducted a small study of six healthy adults, and um, they were asked to take 10 milligrams of biotin for a week. And then um, they ran a variety of blood tests on them, which were six were suspected of possibly having this sensitivity to biotin uh, overloading, uh, skewing their results. And so they then compared them to uh, lab samples that they took prior to asking them to take biotin. Of the 23 lab tests they conducted, nearly 40% showed a variation from baseline tests, uh, again, taken before the participants began the supplementation. In one case, the test could cause a doctor to miss signs of congestive heart failure, and in another, could have suggested that a patient had thyroid disease when they indeed did not. And another problem is that it's clear, it's unclear at the moment how long it takes for excess biotin to be flushed from the patient's system in order to get clear results. And of course, that time can be different based on a different person, and especially on a person's renal health. And so people with kidney disease may take longer to process the excess biotin and get it out of the system. And so Lee suggests waiting a few days to up to a week before having the tests. I don't think this should necessarily stop people from taking biotin, Lee said. Um, And she notes that there is actually some, at least anecdotal evidence for some of the health benefits um, that biotin is uh, 
touted as having. Um, but she goes on to say, they just need to be mindful, knowing that it interferes with lab tests. They should tell their doctor about it. Um, and so that is, of course, always a good rule is you should always tell your doctor about anything you're taking. Uh, so when your doctor says any medicines, uh, you should consider that to mean anything that you're taking that is a supplement or a actual uh, over-the-counter medicine or a prescription medicine. So if you're taking a multivitamin, you should be telling your doctor you're taking a multivitamin um, because that can have actual implications for other uh, drugs that they might want to prescribe you, or it might be that that will give them an information will give them information about something else in your health. So you should always tell your doctor everything you're taking. Um, and so, yeah, that is just, you know, one of those sort of rules of thumb, definitely tell your doctor if you're taking supplements. Um, I personally would recommend you don't bother taking supplements um, because most of them are just a waste of money um, and you are actually not getting uh, any actual real benefit from it. You're basically just flushing money down the toilet um, in a lot of uh, cases. And so, yeah, but if you do decide to take them, make sure that your doctor is aware that you are doing it. Okay. So let's shift focus. And um, I wanted to talk about the Nobel Prize for a while. Now, of course, it's coming up uh, this next uh, on Monday. And so I wanted to talk about it a little bit. And so there was a recent article by David Pratt in the Ottawa Citizen, uh, and he was talking about the Nobel's gender problem. Uh, and it's, it's had a gender problem since its inception, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Um, and so, for instance, this year, there are no women amongst the 11 Nobel laureates who will receive their awards uh, Monday night uh, in Stockholm and Oslo. And in fact, in the 116 years of the prize, only 49 of the, I believe it's 396 laureates have been women. And so that's a pretty small number uh, compared to the overall. And so there are several well-known cases, especially in the sciences, obviously, uh, where men have actually been awarded prizes that were based largely on the work of women, uh, such as Lise Meyer for her work on nuclear fission, uh, Jocelyn Burnell, who discovered pulsars, and of course, the most famous case uh, that most people actually really do know about, which is, of course, Rosalind Franklin, uh, whose X-ray crystallography was absolutely crucial to the discovery and understanding of the structure of DNA. Now, unfortunately, in this case, Franklin had already passed away from breast cancer by the time the award was given, uh, though uh, considering the way that Watson and Crick Crick uh, were continually lionized, uh, while Franklin was often considered mostly a footnote, it seems unlikely that even if she had been alive, that she would have actually shared in the prize. Now, he does point out that women have fared better in non-science categories, especially in peace and literature. 
but they have been glaringly absent in large parts of the science and analytical prizes. And so I was interested in this article. And then there was a bit at the end that I was a little unsure about. Um, I feel like the end of his article really kind of walks a line uh, between condescension and appreciation. Uh, And so he gets into a little bit about the overlooked, quote unquote, role of women as mothers and wives of Nobel laureates. Um, And so he does note that at least 40 Nobel laureates had lost their fathers by the age of 11 and thus were raised by their mothers. He also notes that the marriages of Nobel laureates also tend to last longer than average. Um, But I think that it's much more important to discuss the fact that women are just not being represented in the Nobel Uh, science awards, especially, even though at this point, there are definitely women doing amazing work. Um, I mean, I find the Nobel to be a little bit of a uh, oddity. Um, There are some people out there who have, who should have won it years and years and years ago and continue to be passed up, uh, men and women. Um, There are some people who have gotten it for things that didn't seem as impressive as some of those other things. Um, And so it's a very sort of esoteric and idiosyncratic uh, award. However, it has this imprimatur um, that people really believe that someone who wins it is definitely someone who uh, deserves to be uh, considered sort of a major figure in the field. And it's almost always true. um, But that is is still, um, it's still very arbitrary. And that sort of um, issue with someone being considered to be a giant once they've met, once they've won a Nobel, is actually part of the problem of our next story about the Nobels. And so this is a rather well-known problem. Uh, And so this is the problem that Nobel Prize winners have a tendency to later on in life, especially embrace ideas that are, shall we say, less than orthodox. Now, the most famous example of this uh, quote unquote Nobel disease, uh, which is a moniker most likely coined by the oncologist and blogger Orac, um, is that of Linus Pauling. Now, Linus Pauling was a brilliant chemist, and he did amazing work, and all of that was completely true, and there's no controversy there. However, Pauling spent much of his later life trying to prove that vitamin C, or ascorbate, uh, was able to cure not only the common cold, but even cancer. And so while he might not have envisioned this, his work actually led to countless quack cures, Uh, things like emergency and airborne, and more dangerously claims that high doses of vitamin C can treat diseases like Ebola and polio. Um, So some of these are more dangerous than others, obviously, but all of them are based in quackery and in the idea of what his theory was, which is it's come to be known as orthomolecular medicine. And so this is the idea that if a little of a vitamin is good, then a lot of a vitamin is even better. That's not really how it works. (laughs) Um, For vitamin C and for many other 
um, substances, vitamins, and supplements. Um, part of the deal is, is that there's a certain amount that your body can use, and then whatever is excess is just flushed from your system. Um, hence the idea that you're flushing away a lot of money um, <laughs> because you're just it's just going right through your system because it your body doesn't need more than it needs. Um, and so this is just something that has become a huge issue. It's the reason why people still tell you to drink orange juice when you have a cold. Um, and this is all down to Linus Pauling. Um, I mean, not single-handedly, obviously, but this was his big, um, sort of final project was to convince people, um, that ortho molecular medicine was, actually a thing, which it is not. <laughs> so another victim of this uh, Nobel disease is uh, Louis Ignaro, uh, who won the Nobel Prize for Medicine for his discovery of nitric oxide signaling pathways. Unfortunately, he came to believe that supplementation with arginine uh, would ramp up the nitric oxide signaling system and thus prevent or even reverse arthrosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which of course it does not. Um, he actually eventually became a shill for the odious supplement uh, and uh, basically pyramid scheme uh, Herbalife uh, and even became a member of their nutritional uh, advisory board. Um, so yeah, um, Herbalife, not a good thing. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> It is uh, very much a um, quack thing as well. And so the other uh, one that I wanted to just note historically is Nicholas Tinbergen, who has the dubious honor of stating that, quote unquote, refrigerator mothers and other environmental factors were the cause of autism in his 1973 Nobel acceptance speech <laughs> at a time when that theory was finally being discredited. This led the blogger Prometheus to note that he, quote, managed to set a nearly unbeatable record for shortest time between receiving the Nobel Prize and saying something really stupid about a field in which the recipient has little experience. <laughs> so yes, um, that is record time. Uh, so he was an animal behaviorist. Uh, and so he thought that his, uh, you know, he could look at animal behavior and try and extrapolate that to autism and he was wrong. Um, this was not at all. Uh, this is a long since discredited idea that it is uh, mothers who don't love their children enough uh, that causes autism. Uh, most mothers of autistic children love them deeply and are extremely affectionate and there is no uh, correlation between those two things. And um, so the latest version of this, uh, the reason why it's sort of come up is that um, it is the Nobel laureate Luc Montagnier, uh, who won the prize for his co-discovery of the AIDS virus. Um, though I did want to note, I... I almost forgot to note that James Watson actually is amongst these uh, folk who have gone on to embrace pseudoscientific uh, beliefs. Um, he's, he's become kind of a kooky old man. Um, 
And uh, yeah, uh, some of it's been pretty terrible. Um, There was some sort of race and intelligence stuff that he got into. And yeah, so this is a this is a disease that hits a lot of people um, after they win the Nobel. But let's talk a little bit more about um, Montagnier. And so Montagnier, along with prominent French cancer researcher, Henri Joyeux, uh, held a press conference denouncing the French government's 11 compulsory vaccinations, which are required by the sixth week. Now, of course, they start out their statement, uh, as any good anti-vaxxer does, by saying that they're not against vaccinations, simply against the current batch of vaccinations and their ingredients, and against the greed and laziness of vaccine manufacturers. They then go on to trot out several extremely and thoroughly discredited beliefs, including that Aluminum adjuvants uh, are toxic, that vaccines can cause SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome. Um, And this is the most egregious of their claims um, and to one which we will return in a moment. Um, And they believe that that is caused by the um, vaccine causing a cytokine storm, um, which it does not. um, (laughs) Spoilers. Um, And also that the vaccine against hepatitis B is unnecessary at such a young age and can cause future allergic phenomena, including autoimmune diseases. Now, first, there have been many well-designed studies that have shown no harm associated with aluminum adjuvants um, or adjuvants. And those that did show a link have been poorly designed, um, have cherry-picked data, and in fact, some of them have even resulted in retractions. Um, and so basically, they eventually had to say, whoops, we didn't do this properly, and we need to uh, take this paper out of circulation. And so there is uh, no evidence um, that they produce cytokine storms either. Um, cytokine stores are storms, excuse me, are generally caused by infections and can indeed be very dangerous or even deadly. Um, but there's nothing to suggest that they are associated with vaccines. Now, as for hepatitis B vaccine, there is no research to suggest it's associated with any negative health outcomes, but it does indeed have very real health benefits. Infections with hepatitis B uh, are associated with liver cancer or cirrhosis of the liver and premature death. And ever since people have started having uh, children vaccinated for this, the rates of hepatitis B have gone down precipitously, and it's a good thing, much like all vaccines. They lead to good things, less disease, not more disease. Okay, now let us return to the idea that vaccines can be associated with the terrible and still not fully understood, absolutely, um, anyone will concede that, uh, phenomenon of SIDS. Now, again, while not everything is known about the causes of SIDS, what can be said rather definitively, is that it is not associated with vaccination. And in fact, uh, for instance, in a German case control study, um, and this is among a host of others, there is even some suggestion, suggestion that vaccines may be protective. 
And so the reason many anti-vaxxers believe that the two are connected is in reality no more than a coincidence of timing. The peak timing for SIDS deaths in Germany is at three months. This is also the time when the first sets of immunizations are given to babies. So in the GE SID uh, study, they found that there were more infants in the control group, um, those who were healthy and survived, who had been vaccinated than there were in the group, which unfortunately had died of SIDS. And so the the infants in the control group had also begun immunizations earlier than those in the SIDS group. And so even when restricting the data down to 14 days prior to death or examination, no increased risk of SIDS was indicated for those who had followed immunization schedules. And this has been followed up. So many uh, studies have been done that a meta-analysis was able to be done. And so that found, again, that there is no positive correlation between vaccination and SIDS. And so to suggest that such a devastating and often confusing outcome such as SIDS could be caused by a life-saving intervention like vaccination is just beyond irresponsible. It is frankly immoral. And it's especially disheartening when scientists who have the imprimatur of knowledge that comes with being a Nobel laureate, that when they become agents of pseudoscience and misinformation, it is just so much dishear- so much more disheartening. Um, and so, yeah, uh, definitely not a fan. <laughs> okay, let us take a short break and do some PSAs and uh, a show promo or two, and we will come back and we will turn away from these uh, disheartening uh, tales and talk about some more sort of fun fact science things. So hang on for just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. 
Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash CET. iHeart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. Okay, we are back, and uh, we are going to be switching to uh, Lighter Fair. And so um, you may have heard about this, but I wanted to talk about it a little bit. And so uh, a new dinosaur has been found. Well, it hasn't actually been found, uh, quote unquote. It has been formally described. uh, And so the paper formally describing it uh, is coming out. And so um, we'll talk a little bit about how it was found later on. Uh, It's actually part of the story. And so what's so interesting about this dinosaur is that it combines features that seem both aquatic and bird-like. And so it's this sort of interesting and weird combination of uh, features that suggest uh, a combination of a raptor and waterfowl. (laughs) Uh, So for instance, it has a standard raptor tail and slender legs but then has a long neck and skull more reminiscent of a swan. And so uh, because of the body uh, configuration, it has a center of gravity that would be closer to that of a goose. And it finally uh, features short, broad forelimbs that uh, resemble swimming birds, such as penguins. It is the first time a bird-like dinosaur shows so many semi-aquatic features, said lead author Andre Cao, a vertebrate paleontologist at the University of Bologna in Italy. We suggest it was comparable to some aquatic birds of today in ecology, an opportunistic predator able to exploit both terrestrial and aquatic resources that relied on the long neck for foraging. And so, for instance, the area in which the fossil was found, uh, 
it's indicated that it most likely would have been a scrub desert with strong seasonal uh, shifts between uh, a humid area and semi-arid semi-arid uh, conditions. And so the area was also populated by a host of small-bodied mammals and lizards, as well as other dinosaurs like velociraptors, which, again, um, if you don't know, uh, we're much closer to the size of a chicken than that of a man. Uh, <laughs> Jurassic Park lied to you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, and so, of course, they would have also had feathers. Um, again, Jurassic Park lied to you. I mean, technically they didn't. They have a throwaway line in every movie that says, well, you know, they're not really dinosaurs the way that dinosaurs would have been because we wanted them to look a specific way so that people would be specifically uh, impressed by them. So uh, technically they didn't lie to you. They just <laughs> gave you a false impression. And so the new specimen, um, whew, let's try this. How's Halscaraptor escruliae, yeah, that's, sorry for butchering that, uh, is part of the group of animals uh, which is called Manoraptorans. And so this includes birds and other related dinosaurs. And um, so now we say that, but uh, the bird, I'm sorry, the dinosaur may look quite bird-like, but it's actually not a direct descendant of modern birds. Uh, it's just a member of a family at the base of the um, dromaeosaurs, which is actually a uh, family that includes the velociraptor. Um, so it is sort of related closer, more closely to velociraptors, which again are not direct descendants of modern birds. Um, it's another... Um, it's another kind of non-avian um, raptor species that is uh, the sort of basal line for birds. And so there are other dinosaurs that have sort of hinted at uh, sort of pescatarian tendencies, uh, you know, getting fish from water and things like that, um, including a Dromaeosaurus species from South America. But um, Halscaraptor uh, seems to be the first to really show signs of being fully committed to a semi-aquatic life. It's really a surprise. It looks like some kind of toothed, short-armed pseudo-goose, uh, noted Darren Nash, a paleontologist at the University of Southampton, uh, who was not involved in the study. Now, there is some question as to the interpretation of the skeleton, and there is a question related to its provenance. Now, of course, interpretations of the skeleton, we talked about it last week, uh, are always up for uh, question. It's very hard to tell exactly what an animal looked like based solely on the bones. Um, you know, obviously for some amazing uh, specimens, we have more than the bones, but for this one, um, it seems to be mostly just that the bones have been uh, preserved. And the real issue um, that people have had is that the specimen is not a specimen that was uh, found by paleontologists 
in situ. Uh, it was actually originally smuggled out of Mongolia and it passed through several uh, hands before being acquired by a French fossil de- dealer who uh, generously donated it to the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences. And so, um, you know, that can make it very hard to determine whether or not it's authentic. Um, And so what they were able to do is that they have not actually, it's actually still in a block of um, rock. And instead of removing the specimen from that matrix, the team instead collected six terabytes of high-resolution synchrotron radiation scanning images. Um, And so this has helped uh, determine that the specimen is um, almost certainly authentic. Um, And part of the reason that they were worried about that is that because it had been trafficked, smugglers are actually known to have sort of cobbled together skeletons in the past. And some of them have even actually initially fooled researchers, and it's been kind of a big deal. Um, That happened in China in the not too distant past. And, you know, it's kind of a big deal when, you know, uh, paleontologists get snookered like that. Um, And of course, some researchers are still skeptical of the team's conclusions, uh, just based on morphological uh, issues. And um, so Steve Brousset, a paleontologist at the University of Edinburgh, um, uh, who was also not involved in the study, notes that a semi-aquatic niche uh, is a neat idea and one that needs to be tested further by new fossil discoveries. If somebody finds soft tissue on one of these fossils, that could help seal the deal, whether it had flippers or other signature features of semi-aquatic creatures. So, you know, fair enough. (laughs) Um, But for now, Kao and his team uh, stand behind their interpretation. And so um, I will post a uh, link to the picture of it. It looks pretty funny. Um, It definitely looks like a little bit of a wobbly guy. Um, And this is the interpretation that Kao and his team stand by, which, you know, um, I think that there is obviously a uh, way in which these things can be considered um, to be as close to the truth as we're going to get until we find those better samples that have actual, um, you know, soft tissue remains. Okay. So let's move on now and switch gears. And so we are going to finish up the night by talking about a couple of stories that involve the use of sound in science. And the first is a story, uh, which is near and dear to my heart uh, because it's talking about one of my favorite things in the world. Uh, So this is a story out of the University of Washington, Bothell. And so researchers are using audio recordings to uh, develop a way to study and track crows that congregate on the tops of the building uh, that they work in uh, before roosting for night in the area trees. And so the researchers are using computerized eavesdropping to study the relationship between calls and the bird's behavior. With audio alone, our team is able to localize and record the birds remotely. And in dim light, that makes this situation less suitable for video tracking, said Shima Abaldi, an assistant professor at UW Bothell's School of Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics. It's still a challenging task, but we can use the audio signals to look for patterns and learn more about what the birds may be communicating. 
And so previously, Abadi had worked with ocean acoustics. Um, so some of her previous research was actually in tracking whales uh, using underground micro, sorry, underwater microphones. Um, and so for this current research, she's teamed up with Douglas Walker, an associate, an assistant professor of biology at UW Bothell. And he's actually been studying crows uh, for quite a while with his undergraduate students. They're incredibly raucous and make this cacophony every night. And people wonder, what are they saying? And that's a great question to ask on this campus, uh, he noted. <laughs> so starting in 2012, uh, Wacker, who previously studied song sparrows, uh, turned his attention to the some 15,000 crows, uh, which migrate to the North Creek wetlands that abut the campus. Crows make a variety of different calls, some of which we understand the functions of fairly well and others not as well, Wacker said. Their normal caw call calls are not necessarily well understood. We don't know what information they might be conveying. And so he teamed up with a body, a body uh, starting last year in an interdisciplinary approach, which teams his knowledge of biology with her knowledge of acoustics. And so, of course, observing crows, even remotely, can be tricky. Uh, as you know, especially if you're a regular listener, crows are very smart. Uh, they are rather shockingly smart in some ways, uh, and they will change their behavior if they think humans are watching them. Uh, they will change their behavior if a new piece of equipment is placed in their environment. They will change their behavior if anything is even slightly out of place <laughs> at times um, because they are smart and they remember things. Oh boy, do they remember things. Um, one of the other things you'll know if you are a regular listener is, of course, the fact that crows are notorious for holding grudges. <laughs> so luckily, these people are not pestering their crows um, because we already know a lot about that. Um, and so in addition, uh, other issues are that, well, a, ro a rooftop filled with birds is a noisy environment in which to try and pinpoint individual sound makers. And so the team has devised a protocol wherein four audio recorders are placed in a 10-foot square. Uh, they've started out working in a parking lot currently. Um, and so then they place a speaker in one quadrant, which plays a crow call. Now, the recorders have precise timestamps to calculate when the call registers. And so using software to compare these precise times, they can then triangulate and pinpoint where the sound originated. They have already been able to devise a way to focus on the highest quality audio, which triples the accuracy of their location data. And so they can at this point pinpoint a call to within 6 to 12 inches or about the size of a bird. <laughs> so between 50 and 100 crows might assemble on the roof of the faculty building, and while they are quite loud as they fly in, they do quiet down as they settle on the roof. And so the team is working with a body to develop a user interface and computer software that will pick out particular calls so that the students do not have to pour through hours of random noise in order to find interesting events. Now, they're planning to roll out the actual rooftop observation this winter. And so they're hoping at a later date to also incorporate 
video recording in order to view how the crows react physically to different calls. So in the meantime, what they're doing is they are testing their theories by playing particular calls and seeing if the crows react in the expected manner. And so the idea is to test whether there really is a language there, uh, if the cause and the other uh, vocalizations are really telling each other something or if it's just noise. If a bee can do a dance to tell other bees where food is located, then certainly a highly intelligent bird and a family with other bird species that are capable of insight learning, recognizing themselves in a mirror, recognizing faces, and passing that information onto subsequent generations, hence grudges, uh, could be capable of communicating complex information, uh, Wacker said. So basically, if bees can do it, Crows can do it, is what he's saying. Um, and so um, I definitely look forward to reading more about this research and seeing if they can really determine uh, just what the crows are saying, uh, especially when they think that no one is looking. Okay, so our last story tonight is really interesting, um, and uh, we'll hopefully have a bit of time to listen to one of the audio uh, clips from it. So uh, this is a story wherein uh, two researchers, Mark Ballora, uh, a professor of music technology, and Jenny Evans, a professor of meteorology, uh, both at Penn State University, have teamed up. Um, they actually teamed up in 2014 in order to develop a way to sonify data. And so they've started with hurricane storm data. Um, and in order to help make deciphering that data easier and available to those to whom visual data can be challenging. And so basically what they do is they turn visual data into sound data. And so they're hoping uh, first to create sonified versions of weather reports. Um, and they think that that will help people to better understand the information being imparted. Um, and so they note that while our eyes are good at detecting static properties like color, size, texture, our ears are better at sensing properties that change and fluctuate. And so sound is also processed more quickly and viscerally than visuals. And so the way that they do this is they take four measures of a hurricane um, and they do it basically data points at every six hours to create a sonification of a storm. And so they take air pressure, latitude, longitude, and asymmetry, which is a measure of the pattern of winds blowing around the storm center. So what they do is they then export the data into a music synthesis uh, program called Super Collider. And this allows the pair to use the numerical values to be scaled and transposed as necessary so that a large amount of data, say, for instance, a storm that lasts several days, can actually be scaled down to a few minutes or even seconds. And so what they do is they choose synthesized instruments that have been created to be suggestive of storm sounds and which blend well together. They note that, quote, in our recordings, air pressure is conveyed by a swirling, windy sound reflecting pressure changes. More intense hurricanes have lower values of air pressure at sea level. 
The winds near the ground are also stronger in intense storms. As pressure lowers, the speed of the swirling and our sonic recordings increases. The volume increases, and the windy sound becomes brighter. The longitude of the storm center is reflected in stereo pan, the position of a sound source between left and right speaker channels. Latitude is reflected in the pitch of the swirling sound, as well as in a higher pulsing sound. As a storm moves away from the equator towards one of the poles, the pitch drops to reflect the pole, the drop in temperature, excuse me, outside the tropics. A more circular storm is typically more intense. Symmetry values are reflected in the brightness of a low underlying sound. When the storm has an oblong or oval shape, the sound is brighter. So let us quickly take a listen to a sonification of Hurricane Sandy. let that finish playing sort of under us. Um, so that's sort of how it works. Uh, so they have sonified 11 storms and mapped global storm activity for 2005 so far. And so they believe this kind of data could uh, potentially be used for radio broadcasts where people have limited access to data, for instance, uh, during storms. They also think it could help meteorologists in studying the storms. Um, and they also hope to introduce this technique to all kinds of graphs, especially graphs that are projected are presented to children. Um, it's been proven that this kind of sonification is effective, but there hasn't yet been very much adoption um, across, especially school systems. Um, and so they are hoping to sort of get this off the ground. They hope that adding this element can bring more people into an appreciation of math and science, which is always good. All right. So that is all the time we have for tonight. Please do stay tuned for civil politics.